Generations Church, welcome to service. If you're joining us online today, we're grateful that you're here. We're in a season called Advent. This is that Christmas time, that time we remind ourselves of the original coming of Christ. We think backwards to the advent of Christ, the first coming. That's what that means. And we, we do so with longing, with expectation. And this year, this season has been clearly different as we've endured nine, ten months, whatever it's been of uh, COVID restrictions. And we're, you know, as the cases have spiked back up, now different restrictions are going on. And, and so it's a different season for sure. Uh, people are all over the map with this. People are sick, people have lost work. And so sometimes it's hard to focus in and anticipate or long for Christmas, especially if maybe our plans aren't going to be the same as we typically do or the way we would want them. And so Advent is us reminding ourselves that this is all about Jesus. It's, it's not about the family gatherings, though those are great. It, it's not about the church services, though we love those. It's not about the other things. It's all about Jesus. There is enough this year, that we might rejoice just because of Jesus. Here's our main idea for today as we talk about peace. Jesus is divine peace. He entered into human flesh to provide a way that sinful humanity could live in peace with the holy God who created us. Jesus entered into human flesh to provide a way that sinful humanity, you and I, could be reconciled to a holy God, the holy God who created us. That's our idea today, that Jesus did that for us. Will you pray with me, and we will get to Scripture. Jesus, as we gather this morning, here, online, Lord, be with all of us. Help us to connect to one another as a church, whether we're at distance, uh, whether we live locally, but we are live streaming, or whether we're here on campus. Lord, help us to be one together as a church. Help us to have peace this Christmas because you have come. It's that that we celebrate. It's what you have accomplished for us that we celebrate. And so because of you and because of what you have done, we have peace. Peace doesn't come through us having a job or freedoms or lack of a virus or anything else. Peace comes from you. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. Today we're going to be in Matthew 1. We're going to kind of pick up from the beginning of the story, if you will. Matthew tells a different gospel, or a different, uh, a different beginning, if you will, to the birth of Christ than, for example, Luke does, where we've spent some of our time. The gospel of John spends, uh, a, a kind of focuses a different way as John begins his gospel. Mark dives right into Jesus' ministry, but Matthew approaches this as uh, a good Jewish writer would. He begins with a bit of a genealogy. So Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is the kind of sentence that you, you kind of miss, right? This is the kind of sentence that you, you read it, and it's just, it's just the, it's like the address on the envelope. You have no idea what's inside. And so you keep going. But this is very important. This is talking about the genealogy, the lineage, if you will, the family of Jesus. And so this is where it begins. So here's the genealogy, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And so it begins not in the beginning, it doesn't go all the way back to creation as some other genealogies do, but it begins with the father of our faith, Abraham. And so it moves from Abraham to his son Isaac to Jacob, who becomes the man Israel 
to his son Judah, one of the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Judah. So here's our beginning. This is the the generation, if you will, that went into Egypt. As we just finished the book of Exodus and our community groups just finished reading through the first five books of the Bible, this is at the end of Genesis. It's this family. It's this father and his sons that go into Egypt where one of his sons, Joseph, is there and helping Pharaoh lead the country. And so this is the lineage. These are the people that go in. Verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez by Zerah, uh, Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now, lineages are often interesting, right? And in this one, Matthew does something unique. And you got to kind of disconnect, if you will, from a very American Western mindset. You got to travel back 2,000 years to Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, it was the, the uh, paternal lineage that you would kind of work your way through, and you would, from father to son, to father to son, to father to son, and then you would get to wherever you're headed. And you go all the way back to Abraham and all the way down to Jesus. That's the, kind of the goal today that Matthew, the Jewish disciple, apostle, author, writes to his Jewish audience. And that's Matthew's point is he's writing to a Jewish audience. So he writes very Jewish, if you will. And so he does that, but in, in this lineage, he does something. He strays from typical Jewish authorship in genealogy, and he includes four female, uh, four women in this, four females in this lineage. And so here he says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now, Tamar is an interesting story. So this is our first woman in this journey. And Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah, and she marries a man named Ur, who is wicked and says God kills him because he's wicked, and so not a great guy, right? So you can see that the family from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Ur, which is a bad name for your kid anyhow, right? So Ur, Ur's not a good guy. God kind of strikes him dead, and there's Tamar. Tamar's left without a husband. Now again, in this culture, women couldn't just inherit land or run the family business, if you will. They needed a son. That, the, the, the heritage would be passed off from father to son. And so Tamar is in need of a son. There was also a unique cultural thing called a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman means a family man. It's a brother-in-law today. The kinsman would be a brother-in-law redeemer. And what that brother would do, if you, if you had a wife and you died, your brother would then uh, have a child with your wife. You fill in the math, right? Have a child with your son. That son would inherit the inheritance of the father. And so uh, so then what happens is a man named Onan, Ur's brother, he goes in and he sleeps with Tamar, but let's try to keep this PG. He just won't let her get pregnant. And so in this, God says he's evil and kills him too. So Judah looks at Tamar, kind of freaked out about like, hey, all my sons are dying. And he doesn't want to give any more sons to Tamar. And he just says, come live with me and, and we'll wait for my younger one to grow up. But he has no intention of fulfilling his obligation. And so really, Tamar has been, uh, you know, widowed by a husband and then kind of sexually abused by her brother-in-law and then abandoned or the, the culturally abandoned by her father-in-law. And, and so she does this, but then she, she waits for him. And, and what she does, and, and here's where the story gets really interesting, she dresses up like a prostitute to sleep with Judah, her father-in-law, who does so, and she gets pregnant. And that's the children that they're talking about. Tamar literally dresses up like a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into having kids with her so that she can keep that inheritance in her family. Verse 4, 
and Ram, the father of Minadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now, here's another one, Rahab. Now, if Tamar, right, we just looked at Tamar, Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Now, Rahab actually is a prostitute. As if you remember the story when the the Israelites now, after going into Egypt, grow, they become a, a very big nation. Egypt then gets jealous of them, enslaves them, right? This is the book of Exodus. God delivers them through Moses, delivers them out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness. On the other side of the wilderness, Moses sends spies in to look at the land that God has promised to them. And when he does so, as the spies go in, Rahab, a prostitute, actually hides them and protects them. And so they say, listen, when we come into the land and we devour the people, we're going to protect you and your family. And they do so, and someone here actually marries her. So Tamar pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. So you can see this family genealogy is going swimmingly so far, right? Verse 5, And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, another woman, and Obed the father of Jesse. So here's Ruth. Now, Ruth neither pretends to be a prostitute nor is one. So going better so far, but Ruth is a Moabite. And if you read through Deuteronomy, God curses the Moabites and tells the Israelites, never, 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 never let Moabites worship with you, right? They're bad people. And so when they go in and they displace them, they don't get rid of all the Moabites. And that bites them later, right? But then the people of God, as we follow through the story, then there's this family, as God has kind of removed his blessing from the people because they're being disobedient, this family, instead of repenting and, and trusting in God, instead they leave and they go to Moab. They, they don't trust God, they don't repent, it's their fault anyhow, but so they go to Moab, the enemy of God's people. Not only does this family go, they take their two young boys, but their young boys grow up and marry women, Moabites. Now, Ruth is unique Ruth is actually a really good character. This is the Ruth that has a book named after her in the Bible, right? And so the book of Ruth tells us about that family after, find, after, after the husband dies and then the two sons die as God is just, letting, just causing them to kind of return to him. Naomi, the mother-in-law, and Ruth, one of the daughters, they return back to Israel. And so now again, we're in this place where the men have died and the women need a kinsman redeemer, right? They need someone from the family to step up and give them a child or marry them or do whatever so that the, so that the, so that the, the inheritance can keep going through them. And, and by this time, now these women are broke and they're doing everything they can to even eat food. And a man named Boaz steps up in a great way and is a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. So you've got one who pretends to be a prostitute, you've got an actual prostitute, you've got a Moabite, and that story actually turns out really well, and then the story keeps going, and Jesse, the father of David the king, now we know David, David, king of Israel, right? And David was the father of Solomon, listen to, listen to this line, I love this line, by the wife of Uriah. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. It not only doesn't name her, it just points out the fact that she was someone else's wife. You probably know this story. This is Bathsheba. David goes up on the top of his palace where he can look out and he can see all over the land. And as he looks out, there's this woman named Bathsheba and she is up kind of sunbathing on her roof. David sees her and wants her and so sends for her. And she comes and they sleep together and it's this whole thing. She gets pregnant and David now wants to hide it. She's married to Uriah. 
And so he, uh, he sends for Uriah and then has Uriah killed. That's the very short version of the story. So David not only sleeps with her, has an affair with her, she's a married woman, and then ends up getting her pregnant, but then he murders her husband. This story doesn't get much better, but they both repent, they return to God, that child dies, and then they have Solomon. So you've got Tamar, right? Rahab, Ruth, who's a, a very odd kind of outsider, become insider, a very beautiful story, and then Bathsheba, what was once very sinful, ends up becoming still a royal lineage. So this is the genealogy, right? This is the, this is the beginning of the story, if you will. Verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, right? Verse 7, then Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom, and Jerom, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and then Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jechariah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, we're going to look at this section of Scripture. After God kind of creates and the fall and, and some of that, all, then he raises up a people of faith, Abraham. Abraham has all these children, right? This is his lineage. They end up in Egypt. They end up enslaved in Egypt. God delivers them. They go into the desert, the wilderness, and then for 40 years, then they go into their own home. God gives them a land. They go in there and they start to mess it up. And you can hear how they don't start out well right? And you can just hear some of these stories, even just the women named here, that the men are blowing it, right? The men are all over the place, right? And so here's what we get. By the time we get to this place, this lineage of, king, uh, of kings, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the way down to Hezekiah and Manasseh, some of these kings are decent. Some like king, David is great, even though he starts off really bad, or well, in the middle, he gets really bad. Solomon starts off really good and kind of fails in the middle, right? But all these kings are, are, have their highs and lows, but the, after Solomon, the nation divides in two. And we're going to look at this from January to June-ish, uh, 2021. We're going to talk about the rise and the fall of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. We're going to look at what they go through as a people of faith. We're going to ask ourselves in the church, how do we relate to that? Like, how does this story resonate even today? And so here's the story. There's this succession of failures in kings. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now, God allows this nation to continually fail and fall further and further away while sending prophets and leaders and people to tell them, listen, repent, return. If you were around at the beginning of this year or last year, we spent about a year and a half in the book of Isaiah. And it's this just this repeated call by God to the nation to repent and return. And then if you don't, I'm going to have a nation come in and conquer you and take you back into slavery again. That's Babylon. That happens, right? And so then they go into Babylon. Here's where it goes from Jeconiah to Shealtiel, Shealtiel to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, actually, his name means born in Babylon, right? And that's kind of his name. He was born in captivity, right? Zerubbabel actually would become a pretty cool leader in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He leads back the first wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. Verse 13, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Muthan, Muthan, the father of Jacob. So, after Zerubbabel, we have these more leaders, right? This, this guy has this guy's a son, this guy has this guy's a son, it keeps going, right? 
But the Bible goes silent right after Zerubbabel, that next generation of leaders, the Bible from about 400 BC to right around the birth of Christ, the Bible goes silent. God quits speaking through his prophets. God quits speaking to a rebellious nation. So we leave off after they're released out of Babylon, their punishment for being for not obeying God, and they're returning to Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild, but even at the end of the rebuilding, we just see that they're all kind of scattering and off track, right? Then it, after 400 years, what happens is we pick up the story, the story of Jesus, he is born, and the Jewish people are under Roman authority, so they've kind of lost their place again, and that 400 years of silence just reminds us that, that as God has just repeatedly spoken to them, they're not listening, and so God just but then 400 years later, here comes this, this first voice of John the Baptist, and he's pointing to Jesus, and that's when we pick up the story. It's, this, it's kind of this high point in the story as the New Testament begins. So just a, a note for you guys, uh, it's in your app if you want to take a look. When life doesn't go our way, in hard seasons of life, take a journey through Scripture and read about the families in the Bible. It is comforting to know that we aren't the craziest bunch who ever lived and encouraging to see God use incredibly broken people like us. It is encouraging. It, 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 it helps wake us back up to remind us that no matter how flawed or broken you are, or have been, or may be, that God can still use you, that there's always this opportunity to repent, to return, right? We talked about David. David is this this stellar believer young kid who grows up an amazing man of character, until he isn't, right? Until he has this affair with Bathsheba and then wants to cover it up and he murders her husband and just all this. But then he has the lowest moment in his life as one of the prophets comes to him and he tells him this story and gets David all angry. That guy should die. And he's like, you're that guy. And David has this moment where he must cry out to God and say, I've sinned, God, against you. And so David returns and becomes a great figure. King David was the king over the greatest moment in Israel. And, and eventually his son Solomon does take his place, right? And so we're encouraged by the stories of Scripture. We don't read about superheroes that never got it wrong and are always perfect. What we read about is human beings like you and I who are flawed and broken. But when those humans return to God, God does amazing things. And honestly, we learn that we're not the craziest bunch ever used by God. And that gives us hope right? Verse 16 says this, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So that peaceful manger scene, right? That, that beautiful thing, I have them set up at home. I love manger scenes. It's Christmas time, and um, I've got one that we take up to Big Bear with us. That's a bunch of little bears. I know it's probably not as accurate as we'd like it, but I have some uh, more accurate, if you will, ones, more uh, the baby Jesus and Jerry and Mos uh, Mary and Joseph, can't talk, the wise men, the shepherds, the animals. It's just this beautiful scene. I, I love that. We have some artwork that depicts that scene. I just love this. And it's, it's always very peaceful, right? That peaceful manger begins with a woman who pretends to be a prostitute, a prostitute, a Moabite, and an affair, just to name four, right? In years and years and years of this family, it reminds us, oh yeah, this family wasn't always so good. But yet, here we are now, and God is using this family, this broken, historically crazy family, he's using them to bring Jesus into the world. 
So again, here's a note for you. Broken people used by God. God doesn't begin with good people and then add Jesus to them. God uses desperately wicked people and transforms them in Christ for his purposes. That's what we need to hear today. God doesn't go out there and scour the earth and look for the good people and then sprinkle a little Jesus on them and then say, okay, now, now that, that's my church. I'm going to try that. I'm going to go out and conquer the world with them. What God does is he uses incredibly broken, sinful, corrupt, and just wicked people and then transforms them and uses them so that his name is made great, not theirs. This, for me, reminds me all the time of why I can be in ministry, why I can do what I do today. Just flash back to my life and the past and how I came to faith, and I am the least likely choice, and, and that I should never be doing this, but, but God is made great, not me. That God is held high, not me, because we know, apart from God, I'm a train wreck, right? And that, that it's only by the grace of God that we're here. See, that's the gospel message that God created you and loves you. He designed you. He knows how you function best. He knows how you're your happiest. He knows how you glorify him best. He knows how you're made to be. He is the designer and we are designed. But then we've all broken the design. We've all gone out and, and we've gone our own way and we've inherited sin from generation after generation after generation of these crazy people, right? We, we inherit all that. But then we join the circus ourselves and add sin upon sin and brokenness upon brokenness. And the world is the mess that it is. America is the mess that it is today because of us. We have contributed, right? And, and, and so it reminds us that, that all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of what God has called us to. But God doesn't leave that story just alone in a mess right there. He could have abandoned David. He could have abandoned many of the people that we read about but he doesn't. Instead, he sends Jesus. And so Jesus enters into human history to be our salvation, to cover our sin, to redeem us and, and return us and bring us back into relationship with God. You see, when we talk about peace, one area we need peace is we need peace with God. See, as we are sinful and wicked and running the other way, we're at enmity with God. But Jesus brings us back together. When we, when we come to faith in Jesus and he covers our sin, he restores that relationship between us and our creator. Like I said in the beginning, that Jesus has come, that he, he, re, he reconciles sinful humanity with a holy God who created us. That's Jesus. He brings peace between God and us. Verse 17, it says this, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the, to, to the Christ, 14 generations. What Matthew is saying here is he's just kind of counting through the eras of time that get us to Jesus. But Matthew also reminds us of a bit of a hidden story in this genealogy too. It begins with Abraham, kind of the, the, the father of our faith, right? And then it goes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to, you know, who becomes Israel, his sons, as they move into Egypt, they're doing well. They're a family of faith. But we know, even just by reading this, that Judah, one of his sons, has a, a son named Ur, who's wicked, and Onan, who's wicked. Those are his sons that we know about, right? And, and we're reminded that the, the family, the faith, is already falling apart. So as we pick up the next, but that's the end of Genesis, as we pick up Exodus, the people of God are enslaved, right? And, and, and then God delivers them. 
They wander around in a desert because of their sin, and then they enter into the promised land. They're given land, and then they wander away from God again. Even though they're in their own home, they're in their own land, God has done amazing things. They sin, and they drift away from God, and God calls them to return. God calls them to return, and when they don't, he exiles them to another country. He, he uses another nation to conquer them and enslave them, and then he releases them, and they get back together. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city. They rebuild their homes. They worship again, and then already they start sliding away again, and it just reminds us of this perpetual cycle, and it helps us put ourselves in that cycle. We know that one day we might be doing good, and the next day we're off on a rabbit trail running away from God again. And it reminds us that, that this, this kind of pattern happens. And it reminds us of this slavery and freedom narrative that also reminds us of the gospel, that we are born enslaved to sin, but Christ, our Savior, sets us free. And so there's all these stories in this genealogy, this stuff that we just kind of, we're like, hey, those names are really hard to read, and it's kind of boring, we just keep going. But there's some amazing stories that are told in these. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, here's the more familiar part, right? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now let me just pause. We hear that all the time. And because we probably know the next couple of verses or where this story goes, we probably miss this. But remember Tamar, right, who pretended to be a prostitute. Remember Rahab, who actually was one, right? Remember Ruth, the enemy of God's people, the Moabite, right? Remember Bathsheba, this woman who cheats on her husband, ends up married to the king. And then we hear, now wait, there's Mary, who one day shows up pregnant and the man she's engaged to wants nothing to do with her. And what we hear is, you know what? Like, this story sounds a lot like the, like the story that it comes from, right? Like, this is, this is another story like this. And, and Joseph hears this, and what he hears is, you know what? This sounds like all the rest of the women in this story, really. This sounds like our history, and I just don't want any part of it. And Joseph, even being a good man, he doesn't want to shame her and publicly do this, he wa- but he wants out. He's like, I don't want any part of this. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He tells her, listen, I know she's pregnant, but she's not been with anybody. She's been faithful to you. God speaks to Joseph, and he calls him Joseph, son of David. He flashes back to this story when when the people of God were at their height and they had their greatest leader, and he's like, remember, you're a son of that guy. And your son, Mary's son, my son, right? God saying his son is also going to be a son of David. And Joseph, you can marry her. You can go through with this. It's okay. Verse 21, he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, who needs saving more than this crazy family, right? Well, yeah, us. I mean, we're a lot like this, right? Like, it's, this sounds like our family gathering. In fact, maybe these restrictions are, maybe you don't have to get together with all this crazy family this year, right? But this sounds like our lives, right? We all have that brokenness, both in our history and in our family history, in our genealogy. We have the divorces and the affairs and the breakups, and we have that one cousin or aunt or somebody we just don't talk about, or that one uncle that that has this story that we just don't talk about. Well, that's this family. They have those stories. They're actually a real family. 
But what we get to see is God using a very broken people to bring the Savior of the world, to bring his Son into the world. It sets us up to understand that God uses broken people, that, that your life and my life is, is able to be redeemed by Jesus as well. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Instead of abuse and prostitution and affairs and other sins, this story is a miracle that will actually cover over all those sins. This is the story of how all those people are brought back to God. He says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. God has sovereignly orchestrated all of this to fulfill an impossible plan promised hundreds of years before Jesus was even born and just, just kind of checking off thing by thing by thing, just God portraying, listen, I have caused this. I am doing this. He allows us to know, okay, even in your circumstances, I can do this. Right? Here's kind of our theme for the day. Here's another note for you. Peace through faith. God orchestrated the redemption of humanity using the least likely people. If God can do that, he can heal our lives. Trusting in God brings us peace. Right, right now, as the news is, this vaccine's been approved, and this vaccine's been approved, or this one, or that one, all these things, we can't find our peace in human solutions because they're all over the place. For each vaccine, there's people worried about maybe some struggles with it or whatever, and with each political solution, you get the political baggage that comes with that person or whatever it might be. But peace comes through faith in Christ. We get true peace through Jesus. Let's button up this story. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He did as God told him to do. He called him Jesus. But this story ends just so much more wholesome than it begins. Joseph, a man of faith, steps up and he marries her, but he refrains from being with her until after Jesus was born. He just kind of buttons up the whole wholesome angle of this story. It goes from crazy to kind of nice. And that manger scene, again, kind of takes on a new light. And it's got this history, and it's got this craziness, it's got this brokenness in its background. But right now, because of Jesus, it's really beautiful. Like the story ends in this place of peace. Let me close with this. Here's a, a note, and this is again in your app. What if? What if God is using his, this current season of life, and he's giving us an opportunity to respond like Joseph in faith and obedience to bring peace to others. So what if in this crazy moment where everybody kind of around us has gone bananas, right? And, and the world around us is, is in turmoil. The word peace just doesn't come up right now unless we're saying there's a lack of peace, right? I, right now, the world we live in is not peaceful. What if God has, has placed Christ in us? What if that transformation, our crazy story to maybe our own manger, our moment with Jesus, our life now, what if God has, all, has done all that in the midst of these crazy restrictions and the virus and everything else that's going on? What if he's done it so that you and I become the message of peace to others? Would that change the way you make decisions? Would that, would that change how you speak to others in this season? Would it, would it change how you lean into human solutions and not God? What if we are to be the peace for one another? Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather this year digitally, 
for church, for Christmas Eve, for whatever we're doing, as things are different this year, let them be, let them be reminders of what we truly find our peace in, that it's you. It's not in what we can do or can't do. It's not in our fears or our frustrations. It's in you. That Jesus, you give us peace. And so Jesus, I pray, let us be those who take peace to others this year. Let us be the peacemakers you talk about in the same gospel of Matthew. Let us take your peace and let us give it away because you give peace that surpasses understanding. And so Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.